Hi, this is Dana Stevens, Slate's movie critic, and I'm here with the Slate Spoiler Special Podcast on Anonymous, the new Roland Emmerich film about the Shakespeare authorship controversy. Here with me in the studio is John Swansburg. Hey, John. Hey, good to be here. John is the culture editor for TheNewYorker.com and also one of my favorite spoiler companions, and I'm really happy that we got to do this movie together. I've been looking forward to this movie for a long time. Me too. And one of my favorite spoilers we ever did was 2012, Roland Emmerich's last movie, which is sort of, I don't know what you'd call it, sort of the apotheosis of apocalypse movies that we deeply enjoyed and, and had a lot of fun talking about. So I thought the idea of him taking on something as crazy as the Oxfordian theory was going to be just nonstop roiling fun. But I don't know about you. I was kind of disappointed. Yeah, I had the same feeling. I wanted it to be the 2012 of Oxfordian exactly. theory movies. You know, I wanted it to be a kind of fun, um, what if this were true? Let's make believe and kind of spin out a crazy story about that suggests that Edward de Vere, uh, the Earl of Oxford, was the author of uh, Shakespeare's plays and not Shakespeare himself. The problem, I think, is very simple with this movie, which is that Roland Emmerich and indeed a bunch of the, it seems, a bunch of the actors in the film truly believe Oxfordian theory. This is not a some flight of fancy. It feels like an attempt to prove to the audience that this is indeed what happened, that the Earl of Oxford is actually the author of Shakespeare's plays. You know, I don't believe that theory. Uh, everything that I know about this, and you've, I think, probably read more about it than I have, uh, suggests that there's nothing to this, that actually the, the man from Stratford-on-Avon wrote those plays. Um, but I would have been very willing to go along for the ride of this movie if it was sort of tongue-in-cheek and kind of you know playing it for amusement and, instead of sort of wagging its finger at me saying, you've got to believe that this is the case. Right. And there were some flights of, there were moments where a flight of fancy was almost embarked on and then everything would come back to this very solemn, as you say, this this kind of attempt to prove. And it, what, the, the thing that this movie is attempting to prove, we might as well get into spoilage, just goes way beyond Edward de Vere was the author of Shakespeare's oh, plays, yeah. which has been one strain of the anti-Stratfordian theory for a long time, right? Right. It actually subscribes to this very particular version of that myth. It's not the first to have subscribed, but this is a very extreme version that involves all this incest fantasy and, and royalist kind of intrigue. Essentially, let's take it. Yeah, okay. should, we, should we just list some of the things that are involved in this theory sure. other than that Oxford wrote the plays? So it also suggests that um, Queen Elizabeth was not uh, a virgin queen, but was actually a quite randy queen who was forever getting impregnated by members of her court and then going off to the countryside and giving birth to children who were then deposited with random, uh, you know, well-to-do uh, folks from Southampton. One of those uh, relationships produced the Earl of Oxford, and and unbeknownst to him, unbeknownst to him, he then had an affair with his own mother. Right, right. Forty years later, or no, no, I guess about twenty years later, he's a young man when he has the affair with her. Right. right. We see him in three different stages of his life: the Earl of Oxford, played by Reese Ephons as an adult, right, by the annoyingly television handsome Jamie Campbell Bower as a young man, and <laughs> really then by cheesy. some by some young waif as a as a young boy. Right. It's all kinds of crazy stuff comes in there, like the idea that he wrote Midsummer Night's Dream at age 14 or something like <laughs> <Right>. that. <laughs> but anyway, so so that's that's part one, right? That's he, part one. He, he has both... an affair with his own mother. Then right. they, in turn, sire another heir right. Right, to the throne who's shunted off and raised by commoners somewhere. Well, he becomes the Earl of Southampton, right? Right. Uh, so is he raised by commoners or by, by other... Oh, yeah, that's right. He's raised as an earl. He's yeah, raised so he's earl. raised as an earl. And then he, as a result of being uh, this sort of unacknowledged bastard child of, of Elizabeth, has some claim to the throne because, of course, Elizabeth has no official issue. So there's this problem of who's going to take over, who's going to take the throne when Elizabeth dies. And that's kind of the other element of the movie, that there's this sort of succession plot. Right. And, and of course, there's also James, the King of Scotland, who's going to try to take over. Right. 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 And um, But Southampton, it's not even that Southampton is really the, the character who is the James's rival. It's this other character, the Earl of Essex, who's like Southampton's buddy. 
which is just kind of, like it only just makes things more confusing. But even the fact that this this incredibly convoluted conversation about dumb royalty lineage is <laughs> happening right now shows the main problem with this movie, which is that it tries to do two things at once. One of which is completely boring, in my opinion. This whole business about lineage and incest and you know whatever. The only good thing about that whole storyline is that Vanessa Redgrave plays Queen Elizabeth, and she's really fantastic. I yeah, think with a very great. thin role. I mean, she really has so little to work with, as as everyone here does. Right. But there's something about her presence and her you know obvious love for Shakespeare and the stage and her kind of knowledge of this whole period of history that makes it, I think, one of the most interesting period historical performances I've seen. So we'll talk about that. But meanwhile, I mean, I'm sure the listener to the spoiler is saying, er, what about the man from Stratford? How does <laughs> right. he figure into all of this? And the fact is that he and even the whole question of, you know, how, why and how he was used as this front for the Earl of Oxford is really shunted off to the sidelines. Right. So the man from Stratford in this version, William Shakespeare himself, is basically this barely functional, illiterate dolt, right? Yeah. Um, played by Rafe Spall, who's actually the son of Timothy Spall, the the um you know the the Mike Lee actor you know who oh, Timothy yeah, Spall yeah. is the the big blonde kind right. of buffoon oh, in Mike Lee movies yeah so this is his son it's funny he's old enough to have a son old enough to play Shakespeare but so in this version William Shakespeare is basically this kind of actor idiot who hungry for glory isn't even asked to serve as a front for no that's the thing that's so weird is at first Ox- for some reason the idea is presented that Oxford cannot be seen to be a writer of plays. It's just not an acceptable activity for someone of his station in life. As we see when his wife bursts into his study and he's holding his ink-stained quill, and she says, Are you writing? <laughs> the whole I mean, doesn't just she say, up. Are you writing again? Yeah, exactly, <laughs> but the pause before writing is, yeah. is the most unspeakable thing you can imagine. Right. So when, have- in fact, the Earl of Oxford did publish work during his lifetime, including plays. Right, which, and it which was, was unaccomplished, right? Right, yeah. and, and apparently was fu- praised by his you know, his fellow courtiers. So the whole idea that writing would be this unspeakable, you know, lowering anyway. Yeah, so we have to ex- accept that, that Oxford cannot come clean uh, as the author of King Lear and The Midsummer Night Dream and et cetera, et cetera. So instead he taps Ben Jonson and sort of asks Ben Jonson to pretend to be the author of those plays. Basically, we have, see a scene where he kind of gives him a bunch of loose leaves that I think, is it King Lear or is it, uh, what's the first play that he gives him? I can't remember. Romeo and Juliet? But he basically just, like, tries to like fob off Romeo and Juliet in like a leather-bound folder and say, like, pretend you wrote this and stage it and I want to come watch it. Ben Johnson kind of believes himself to be a good enough playwright that he doesn't want to be passing off someone else's work uh, as his own. And at that point, I don't think he quite realizes the genius of the, of the drama that's being handed to him. So that's kind of how Shakespeare comes into the picture. Ben Johnson's sort of an unwilling stand-in for Oxford, and he kind of gives the, the role of uh, lackey to to Shakespeare, and then uh, not even quite gives it right. He's sort they sort of have a discussion in a pub where you can see right. that Shakespeare's feeble mind is starting to <laughs> to operate in that direction. But then there's not even an official moment that he's made the the, the beard. There's just this really ridiculous moment during a performance where the audience is crying for author author, which I would love to know if that's historical. I don't think that that's historical at all. This kind of like idolatry of the author on the yeah. part of the audience. But then Shakespeare just kind of runs backstage and scribbles his name on the script and comes out holding it aloft and is praised as the author. So in fact the idea is that he sort of stole the credit. Right. Right. And then and then the sort of the suggestion of the movie in this sort of weird t- like condensed time frame is that after the success of Romeo and Juliet staging Every week for the next 27 weeks, it seems like Shakespeare is putting on like a new amazing play that he just happens to, you know, whipped up. Oh, this little ditty, uh, it's called Othello. <laughs> next week, it's The Tempest. You know, it, it, uh, that's kind of the idea uh, of what, what goes on. I mean, obviously, I'm sure the Oxfordians, you know, have a, have a, a timeline, right? Like, you know, that, a timeline that makes some sense or, or attempts to. But in the movie, it just sort of feels like Shakespeare kind of runs with it. And of course, at that point, Ben Johnson gets jealous because he knows that Shakespeare is, of course, 
not the author of these plays and is, is getting all of this renown and getting a decent amount of money out of it and uh, just sort of lording it over everybody else, even though, as Ben Johnson knows, uh, the Shakespeare of this movie, is, as you said, borderline illiterate. Like, can, can't even really scrawl much more than his name with his quill. Right. I mean, uh, that could have been interesting. The Ben Johnson... Shakespeare De Vere triad could have been a source of actual dramatic conflict in this movie had it been spent a little bit more time on and had those relationships been more developed. Instead, there's this there's this late scene between Johnson and Shake and uh, and De Vere when De Vere is dying that sort of implies that they've had this long struggling friendship throughout their lives that we never really saw on the screen. Right, right. Uh, ben Johnson at some point obviously realizes the marvel that is uh, the dramatic works of Edward De Vere, but we never it, there's no like great scene of that. He sort of gradually kind of realizes how good this work is but there's no there's no kind of great moment of realization also we should note that i think one of the recurring motifs that we both thought very laughable was uh, once shakespeare starts staging these plays Edward, oh, that De Vere goes to them? Goes to the plays because he wants to see them performed and he wants to see the adulation uh, that they're receiving. So lace hanky in hand. Lace hanky in hand. There are all these scenes of him fondling his lace hanky and kind of mouthing the words <laughs> of his character. You know, uh, like Mark Rylance is, is uh, you know, doing the opening monologue. Right, for Mark Henry Rylance playing the actor Richard Burbage on stage. Right, and uh, De Vere is kind of mouthing along with him as he recites the lines. And it's just... If it's, nothing else, his self-regard is a reason to dislike this character, right? Exactly, yeah. And also, it's just like, if this guy is trying to keep it a secret that he is the author, showing up at every play in the same box and, and reciting the lines <laughs> of a new play out loud, <laughs> probably, not, think probably not a great way of you know keeping it under wraps that you are the author of these plays. And it's just, there's so many moments where, I, poor Reese Ifans, who's an actor I really like, I think we both really um, uh, have admired his work before, and he's just like... He's just yeah. He's not a like. He's sort of the hero of the movie, but he's very unlikable in a lot of scenes. Yeah, he's essentially sort of a mopey, mopey fop, right? And yeah. you sort of think like, own it, man. If you're going to hide behind your work and never be known, then you yeah, know, then it's then enjoy it's, your anonymity. Yeah, good for Shakespeare. And, and and in a way, the the most enjoyable character in this movie, I think, is is Shakespeare. The kind of the irony of this film is that it's this whole movie designed to suggest that Shakespeare was not the author of his plays, and yet the Shakespeare character in this movie kind of steals the show because he's buffoonish in a way that's kind of a Using. He plays it broad. He right? plays Very it broad, broad, which is, as we said before, kind of what we wish the movie had done, you know, across the board. And uh, he's just kind of loopy, and, and um, you, you're kind of rooting for him, you know, to, to kind of get away with this with this ruse. So, uh, but he's not given enough time that he can become. He could have been kind of a trickster figure, right? Kind right. of a secondary character who becomes the main character because you sort of like his ruse or something. But this movie seemed very, very dramatically unfocused and not sure where it wanted to. Just the moment we started to get into a little bit of a fun triangle with those three writers, and it sort of emotes our Salieri situation with Ben Johnson regarding this superior artist. Then you switch to some big historical, you know, CGI-enabled war scene, right? I mean, right. essentially something about the, the battle for the succession. And we're in a whole different world of the, the serious period historical drama, and it's just not interesting. And not only that, the movie is sort of constantly straining to keep those two plots connected. It's like it's not just that there's a succession plot and there's a did Shakespeare write his plays plot. Like the implication throughout is that – De Vere's work and his unwillingness to sort of come clean about it, being the author is is very much tied up with this succession issue, right? I mean, it's like there, it's we're supposed to believe that the authorship issue is a central part of the reason that James ultimately takes the throne and not the Earl of Essex, who was Elizabeth's bastard and, and probably would have been her choice to succeed her. Um, you know, so the, there was, these things are inextricably linked, which is also just kind of like, so this guy won't own up to his plays and it, and it alters the course of British royal history. I mean, that's, I mean, it's a great story if it's true, but uh, I don't know how many people in the audience that uh, we saw it with were buying it. 
John, I'm going to stop you for just a moment for a word from our sponsor. We have a new sponsor, and I think a very appropriate one uh, this week, which is PBS Indies. And for film buffs out there, which presumably anyone listening to the Spoiler Podcast is, you should know that PBS is offering new independent documentaries on iTunes. So you can visit iTunes and search for PBS Indies or just Google PBS Indies, and you'll find what you're looking for. And I went there and Googled around to see what some of the things are they have on offer, and there's actually one indie I'm quite excited to see. It was at South by Southwest and was a big cult hit there this year. It's called The Parking Lot Movie. And from what I gather, it's a documentary about a parking lot in Charlottesville, Virginia that's run by a bunch of sort of oddballs and slackers who sit around and talk about the people who park cars in the lot. I think it's sort of one of those great documentaries of, of sort of slacker aimlessness. And, uh, and it was a big hit at South by Southwest, but I didn't get a chance to see it. So that's one thing you can check out. There are many more documentaries there to, uh, to keep you entertained. So visit PBS Indies on iTunes and choose your movie. Let's listen to a clip. We all know William Shakespeare, the most famous author of all time. Writer of 37 plays, 154 sonnets, several epic poems, and why we are here today. But what if I told you Shakespeare never wrote a single word? I think, I mean, in a way, the grandiosity of that, that theory goes hand in hand with what's most interesting about the anti-Stratfordian vein, you know, this, this whole authorship debate over the last, you know, century and a half or something, which is that it's almost like the greatness of Shakespeare's work is such that it can't be commensurate with any one real person's life, right? right? I mean, much less this, you know, supposedly ignorant man from Stratford. And so the person that you pick to replace him can't just be a great writer. They also have to be in some way, you know, this, this deposed king. Right. It's like a lot like JFK assassination theories, right? It has to go all the way to the top. Somehow. Right. And, yeah, and, and, and there's this kind of lame sense, I think, that one of the reasons that De Vere is given all of this personal tragedy in his life, that he he's a sort of witness to uh, the uh, machinations of court. He is a victim of unwitting incest. That's so, seemingly to suggest that, like, oh, like, this guy could have written these plays because he slept with his mom. Like he knows tragedy, you know. Like, <laughs> but he wrote them before he knew. Right? Well, that's yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's a good. <laughs> he was doesn't having even really... rich life experience he didn't even know about. <laughs> exactly. But isn't that doesn't that like seem like it's part of what's going on here? Because that's that's well, then also he part sat of down and wrote Hamlet after that, though, right? Right. Exactly. I mean, it seemed like they were trying to give him life experiences that tracked with stuff that happened in the plays. He right even down. stabbed someone yeah. behind an heiress, right? Like yes. Polonius. He stabbed so someone behind an heiress in like as a adolescent, and that's like an important moment in his in his life. And uh, obviously, we're meant to believe it. That's you know where he came up with that scene for Hamlet, which is of course like so boring and uh, a theory for you know that that stroke of narrative genius in the play. Um, it's very it's a very strained theory. And also, um, I always didn't like the Oxfordian theory in part because it seemed like part of it was this kind of classist thing, right? It's like how could this poor you know this relatively poor uneducated guy from Stratford have written these plays? It must have been some you know well to do. Uh, person with a classical education. And that yet, that essentially is, as I understand it, the entire basis for the Oxfordian theory. I mean, there's obviously no positive evidence that anyone but Shakespeare wrote the plays. There's also not very much positive evidence that he did, but right. there's a hell of a lot more for him than anyone else. Right. And, uh, and, and essentially, it seems like the whole Oxfordian argument rests on the fact that Shakespeare couldn't have known the ways of court. He couldn't have known, had all this classical learning. You know, given what we know about his his background, he just wasn't sort of fancy enough to write the plays. And it's a little bit disappointing that this movie subscribes to that so thoroughly. It makes it a very sort of anti-democratic play. I mean, film. Absolutely, yeah. It's um, it's very strange. And also, <laughs> you know, like obviously there are uh, like unfortunate gaps in the historical record. It would be nice for Stratfordians if there were there was just more evidence uh, that. 
that Shakespeare was the author if there were, you know, signed copies of all, all the plays and whatever. But in some cases, I feel like that lack of evidence actually argues in the Stratfordian's favor. Like there's this lost seven years of Shakespeare's life where nobody knows what he was doing. Right. So who's to say he wasn't traveling or studying or just being an amazing autodidact or, or <laughs> right. whatever? Yeah, exactly. But and the other thing is just <laughs> that um, – you know, whatever gaps there may be uh, in terms of having the cold, hard proof that Shakespeare wrote these plays, it seems so much more clear that that, that Shakespeare was the author than that what we've seen in the movie is actually the case. Like, it's so con- – the Oxford theory is not simple. It's very, very complicated, much more so. Yeah, yeah. no, but, it's like the anti-Occam's razor argument. It's right. like It's like if what appears to be true is not true, then this absolutely insane <laughs> fantasy must be true. Right. It doesn't, make any, it doesn't make any sense. One thing I wanted to talk about before we go is just our, our mutual puzzlement and wonderment, and I would love to know more about this, about the great Shakespearean actors who consented to be in this movie that in some ways you could argue defames the author. Vanessa Redgrave, Derek Jacobi is in this strange kind of very small frame story, essentially a minute at the beginning and a minute at the end of him standing on a stage kind of introducing in the modern day. Um, Mark Rylance, of course, who mm-hmm. I think for a while at least was the head of the Royal Shakespeare Company and is sort of you know one of the great missionaries of Shakespeare on right. Earth. And, uh, and all these people are appearing in this movie. Why exactly? Besides, I, I assume, Paola. Yeah, or that they are they're subscribers to the theory. I mean, I, I had to assume that... Well, given- Rylance is. Rylance definitely, maybe not to this particular fevered version of the theory, but <laughs> right. he is someone who questions the man from Stratford. Right. But the impression that I think viewers will get, it's certainly the one that I got, is... Uh, wow, some of the most recognizable Shakespearean actors agreed to be in this movie. Maybe it's the case that a lot of Shakespearean actors you know, believe the Oxfordian theory, which I don't think is the case. But it may be uh, – like I said, it, it could give that, that impression because they've got people like Jacoby who's very recognizable. He just played Lear in New York uh, recently. Did you see that? I did. Yeah, it was good. It was really good. And he was, he was terrific. I mean I don't think his subscription to the Oxfordian theory in any way hampered his, his portrayal of Lear. What, you know, it's one of the toughest roles in all of Shakespeare. Well, that's what's interesting though. It almost seems like – I mean also, of course, famously Mark Twain and Sigmund Freud and Helen Keller and all these people subscribe to various versions of, of authorship debate theories, brilliant people. And it almost seems to me like there's, there's some kind of strain of kind of a combination of idolatry and, and paranoia. There's something that combines to sort of make an, an anti-Stratfordian that maybe a lot of artists and writers have. Yeah, although I, in my mind, if I were an actor, I would want to ally myself with this man from Stratford more than the Earl of Oxford. He would just seem to be, you know, he's more a man of the theater, you know, or at least what we know of him. So it is strange, but I think you're right that there must be some attractiveness to, uh, to yeah, that It's kind very of curious. Theory. You're right. You would think that it would be the humble actor and theater manager that would win your heart, right? right? Yeah, so... I was puzzled by that. Okay, so but you'll you'll still come see the next Roland Emmerich movie with me, right? I will, and I have to say, like, I was never bored during this movie. I was sometimes confused. I was disappointed that it wasn't kind of the movie that I think we both wished it it was, but. Um it was, you know, it was entertaining in its in its own way. I was bored during some of the like, will the Lord of such and such <laughs> <laughs> fight the Earl of so and so? That that right. stuff got a little bit dull. But I think just the constant waiting on the edge of my seat for some sort of juicy, you know, Oxfordianness kind of made up for it. Also, there were there were a few camp laughs. I have to say, especially in the the foppish lace hanky clutching role of of the Earl of Oxford. Yeah, you can laugh at the movie a little bit. I wish it had invited that more. Um, but uh, like twenty twelve did so wonderful. Exactly. Exactly. Well, John, thanks a lot for coming in to discuss Anonymous with me. That was a pleasure. Our producer is Chris Wade. Our executive producer is Andy Bowers. Our editor is Melanie McAfee. For Slate.com, I'm Dana Stevens. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. 
That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchases, full work limited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.